The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludi. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. I have a little subtitle for this one, okay? And it gives maybe too much away, but I'm willing to give you a little bone to chew on as we get started here. Bought and paid for with the cost of God's life. The foreign mercenaries. Uh, Let's see, I think I have a definition. The motive of a common mercenary. So for those of you that don't know what a mercenary is, it's a soldier. But it's a soldier that is not a national. In other words, they, say, say you're an American, and we have a, if we had a mercenary in our army, they might be Swedish. But because we're going to pay them very, very, very well, they will come and fight our battles with us or for us. And so the motive of a common mercenary... A mercenary is a person who takes part in an armed conflict, who is not a national or a party to the conflict, and is motivated to take part in the hostilities essentially by the desire for private gain, and in fact is promised by or on behalf of a party to the conflict material compensation substantially in excess of that promised or paid to combatants of similar ranks and functions in the armed forces of that party. We actually pay them better. We want to give them some type of bait, some type of reason to risk their life. I mean, this is not the wisest choice of occupation to be a mercenary. You might not survive to spend your money. But that's the risk that a mercenary will take. Because a nation in need of armed help will pay big bucks, big piles of gold to get those mercenaries to come in. And the reward that stands before these men is, you know what? I can make far more in one battle here than I could in 10 over here. You ever heard of those, those people that go uh, up into the, what is it, some type of fishing type of industry in Alaska? I know, I've heard of all sorts of different guys in a summer. They're like, yeah, I'm going up to Alaska. Why, why are you going up to Alaska? So it's some type of crab fishing. And it's highly dangerous. The time when they're ready to be uh, harvested is very dangerous time. So these men will oftentimes risk life and limb because they get paid very, very well. Okay, it's a form of a similar motivation. Okay, so we're starting here. This is a spiritual message. Everything I talk about is Jesus Christ. What in the world does this have to do with Jesus Christ? The title I gave was the foreign mercenaries. Those that are outside the nation, those that are outside the pale of the party controller, have any motivation to help, are suddenly drawn in because they have a motivation. They have a reason to come. And to leave home, father, mother, wife, kids, they leave it all and risk their life because there is substantial privilege, there is substantial compensation that is being offered them. Okay, this is just a foundation for you. No part, no share. Okay, this starts out a little depressing. Okay, because I have to allow you to know that, by the way, how many of you are Jewish? Not one of you is Jewish. Oh, that works well for my message, by the way. Uh, therefore, I can speak rather boldly to you. You know, someone listening online is going to be Jewish, and they might be, you know, saying, hey, I don't need to hear this. But you do. You technically have no part and no share in all the glory of the Hebrew nation. The Hebrew nation has been given something extraordinary. But you are a foreigner to it. By race, by birth, you have no part 
or no share in that glory of that nation, of what they have been deposited. Okay, you're known as a Gentile. And a Gentile, I think oftentimes in the church of Jesus Christ, we fail to remember that we are Gentiles. And because that's not the way we are introduced to the gospel, and there's reason for it. I'm not saying it's all bad. But the point being, we don't fully appreciate the fact that we have Jesus Christ, that we have any access unto God. Because technically a Gentile is a dog. They have no access, they have no part, and they have no share in the hope and the promises and the salvation of Israel. And Israel is the only place you're going to find it. This is where God has come. This is to whom God has come. When he gave his great and precious promises, you know who he gave them to? He gave them to Israel. And you have no part and no share if you're a Gentile. So that's, that's how I have to start. Okay, a little depressing. Now, obviously, there's something known as the good news, okay? The good news makes sense, and it becomes good when you know the bad news. You're outside the pale of it. You have no access to it. You're as good as a Philistine. And David stuck rocks in the forehead of Philistines. They're no benefit. They're no good. They're hard-hearted. They don't appreciate and esteem the value of the things of God, but the Israelite nation should. They've been entrusted with the treasure So, as it says in Ephesians 2.12, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, speaking of you, you're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's your entrance package. You are a Gentile. You are disconnected from all of these things. So you can read the Old Testament and go, what an amazing God. Look what he did for these people. And you have no share in it. You are disconnected. You are strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now you'll notice there's dot, dot, dots before that and dot, dot, dots after that. Because Ephesians 2 is an enunciation and encapsulation of the gospel. Okay, so I had to sort of take this out so you wouldn't get too excited too quickly. I need you to feel a little bad news before you can fully appreciate the good. Okay, Romans 9 says, now this is again lifted out, not necessarily out of context, because this is the context, this is just like Ephesians 2 was, but what I'm focusing on here is speaking of the Israelites specifically, Paul is addressing them, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of, the whom, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So let's go through this list. What do the Israelites have in their possession? They have the adoption. Now, that might not mean much to you. But it's a very, very significant thing. Okay, They actually are party or family with the God of the universe. And as family, do you know that you're treated? Like, for instance, my son has greater access to me. My son has my entire wealth, which isn't very much. Okay, in other words, whatever I have, it actually is bequeathed to my son. If he needs something, he comes to his father, whereas there's other children out there that don't have the same access to me as a father. They have the adoption. You may esteem God as a father and say, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? As a Gentile, you don't have it. The Israelites have the adoption, the glory. You know, we, we talked about last night when we, we met uh, and had a, a 
a little discipleship session last night. We were talking about a little out of Ezekiel, the chariot of the cherubim. God literally in his glory comes down and Ezekiel beholds it. He beholds God on his throne carried on top of a terrible crystal sea carried by uh, mighty cherubim that move like lightning with four faces and four sets of wings. Amazing picture. They had the picture of glory in their midst. The very presence of God dwelt with them. Not with the Gentiles. The covenants, they actually had agreement with God, binding agreement with the God of the universe, that if they lived in accordance with God's command, he would guarantee their safety. He would preserve them. He would prosper them. That covenant belongs to them, not to the Gentiles. The giving of the law, they had the picture of righteousness. Righteousness meaning the way a man ought to be. They had it. They had the clear picture. The Gentiles didn't. The Gentiles had no guidance other than their conscience. They had nothing to help explain the way they were intended by the Creator to be. They didn't have the law. The service of God. They actually had the privilege of being in the service of the Most High God. Not in the service of the enemy. Not in the service of Lucifer, for instance. They had the privilege of being in the service of Almighty God. What privilege is greater than that? The Gentiles don't have that privilege. The promises. You ever read through the promises in Deuteronomy? Just take a peek. It is unbelievable. Read Psalm 91. And you begin to realize a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come nigh thee. No plague shall come nigh thy dwelling. He will give his angels charge over thee, and they will bear thee up in their arms, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. You know what? That's not bad. As a Gentile, you have none of it. No part in it. You can say, nice poetry. That's it. It's not yours. It belongs to the children of God. The fathers, they are of the descendants of faith. Abraham was their father. They can boast it. They can actually show pedigree. I belong here. The fathers are my fathers. They don't belong to you. You are not a descendant of this. You are of a different race. You're a dog. They had pedigree proof. They could show it all throughout the Hebrew nation's history. I come from Abraham. The race of the incarnation They are the race that God chose to use as his skin. That's literally what it says. It just doesn't say it in that exact language. It says, and of the, well, I'll I'll read it to you. It says, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. And of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. It was their race. And he took on their flesh. He bore the name of a Jew. He was an Israelite. You know what? That's boasting material. Wouldn't it be cool if we could say, yeah, Jesus came you know, from, well, you might not all share in the excitement of this, from Windsor. Yeah, he grew up in Windsor. In other words, you can boast about the fact that, yeah, I went to school with him. This is pretty impressive when you can say, yeah, he was a Jew. He wasn't a Philistine. He wasn't an Amalekite. He was an Israelite. They have that. That is theirs and it can't be stripped from them. As a Gentile, we can't boast the same. The dogs and the crumbs. 
Okay, it'll, it'll stay depressing for a little while longer, okay? But I'm building a platform, so hopefully you'll appreciate this when it starts to turn. And behold, a woman of Canaan, and then I, uh, this is in Matthew, but I also took a little clip out of Mark 7, 26 and put it in the parentheses here. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. Okay, she's a Gentile. She is not of the house of Israel. She came out of the same coast and cried unto him, speaking of Jesus, that's who she's crying unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Did you just hear that line? Jesus himself says, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of Israel. You starting to get a little depressed? I'm trying to at least whip up a little depression in you. It's like, oh, no. Oh, no, I need my Savior. Could, Jesus, could you hear me? I know that you didn't come for the Gentiles. I realize that. But please, I need to be rescued. I want that to be stirred just a little. Because that's not stirred in the church of Jesus Christ. That's not stirred in the lost out there. They need to know their need before they'll cry out for the Messiah, the helper, the, the rescuer. What good is a rescuer if you don't need rescuing? So, but he answered and said, it is not, oh, I'm sorry. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him. That was her response. First of all, he was silent. Then he says, I'm not come for you. And she falls down and worships him. Saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not meet or right to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. We're talking about God here. This is a quotation from God Almighty. He has just referred to her as a dog. And she said, truth. This needs to be your quote in your soul. And God, as you come before him and lay your life before him and say, I have no business talking with you. I have no business negotiating. I have nothing to bring to the table. But I need you. I need what you bring, and only you can bring it. Fall down and worship your king. I'm a dog. I realize it. It's truth. I am nothing, and I have no part or no share in you. I have no right to claim. It is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, truth, Lord. Listen to her logic. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. There's a little secret packaged in here. Three very good reasons to stop seeking the crumbs. Okay, you are a dog by nature. I know that that doesn't sound very polite for me to say it. I'm included in it too. We are outside. We have no place and no part in this inheritance. We don't deserve it. We have no claim to it. It's like, hey, my father is Abraham. We don't even have that as an argument. Yeah, he came as, as a Windsorite. He didn't. We have nothing. Those, those promises, those great and precious promises in the Old Testament, we have no part in them. We can't leverage them legally. 
and say, hey, God, you promised me. No, I didn't promise you. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Who are you? Well, you know, I'm, I know a few uh, Israelites. Uh, does that count? You know, by marriage, if I marry one, how do I get in? What's my access point? Three very good reasons to stop seeking the crumbs. You know how easy it would be for us to throw our hands up in the air and say, I have no part. Yes, it's a great truth. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's wonderful. Yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But I'm not deserving of it. It's true. I mean, look at this, ponder this. He answered her not a word. That's rude. He declared that he was not sent to any but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's, you know, a, a back, the back of a hand to the, the cheek. I mean, why are we going to keep hanging around? Is that enough for you? Let's leave. We don't deserve it anyways. We have no appeal beyond this. Instead, she falls down and worships him. He refers to those outside the house of Israel as dogs, which in the Hebrew understanding, if you study it in Scripture, you'll see this very clearly. It's a statement of contempt. It's not just, you know what, oh, I love my dog. You're like my dog, and I love you. (laughs) How cute. No, it's a statement of contempt. David uses the term a dead dog over and over again. In other words, it's the lowest of the low. A dog is low, but a dead dog is lower than a dog. Because now it's a dead dog. Now it's just in the way. It's just some ugly carcass. Get it out of here. You're a dog. I'm a dog. Do we have anything that keeps us in the game? Why should we pursue this Messiah? He has what we need. But he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The shocking invitation to the dogs. I almost named this message... The invitation to the dogs, but I didn't know if that would uh, be something that people online would have a clue what they were getting into. Uh, The shocking invitation to the dogs. Then said he unto him, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, a certain man made a great supper and bade many, or invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. So there's a great supper, and there's certain ones that are on the invite list. They're the special ones, and they're the chosen ones. They're on the invite list. And so the supper's been made, and he invites them. Come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, begin to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, oh, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded. And yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go unto the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those which were bidden shall taste of my supper. An invitation has been sent into your mailbox. You have no right, no position, no reason. But those that God bid didn't come. So God is turning And he is looking in the highways and the hedges and he's found you. The poor, the lamed, the halt, and the blind. 
You know that the poor, the lame, and the halt, and the blind in the Old Testament are not allowed in the presence of God? God sends an invitation to you, a dog. You have no value of your own. You have no merit. You have nothing to bring to the table. You're the poor, the lame, and the halt, and the blind. Do you want me to just make sure I include myself in the list so you don't think I'm just speaking down to you? We're all that. We have no business here. But there's an invitation that has been sent to you. You want to know what good news is? Open up your mailbox and pull out a letter from the king. What? What's this? And my wife looks over my shoulder. That, that has the return address from the king. Really, what, what, what do you think he wants? I don't know, but I'd open it. He invites us to come to his feast. Why? He's inviting us. We're outside the pale. We have no part and no share. Can he do that? Well, he's the king. I guess he could. The king has invited us. He's invited us, the ones that are unworthy and have no position and no right. The heavy cost of accepting. Here's where it gets interesting. Because now I've given you a glimmer of the good news. Okay, you've gotten a little taste of it after getting a little taste of the bad news. Now I need to throw on something that could be construed as bad news. It's not in my mind, but I'm going to throw a little weight in the mix. Just mix something around. It's like an extra ingredient that causes it to bubble up a little. Uh, The heavy cost of accepting. At the very bottom, there's like, a footnote, you know, there's little asterisks there in the invitation. Please come to my supper. Uh, and then it's like little asterisks. So what does the asterisk say? You read it. If any man come to me, by the way, this is the context of that invitation. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I'm going to invite you as dogs. I'm coming to you, and I'm giving you an invitation that you have no merit for. But if you accept this invitation, I want you to know the terms. And I want you to know why the original ones that I asked for aren't here. It's because of this. Because those that enter in and partake of the life of God have to understand the cost of it. Also, he cannot be my disciple, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counts the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Or what king, going to make war against another king, sits down, not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet the, him that cometh against him with 20,000? So likewise... Whosoever be he be of you that forsakes not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Interesting strategy by the host of the feast. I'm inviting you. You have no merit. You have no right to be here. But I'm giving you an invitation, though you're a dog. He's placed value on us. He says, I want you. But if you're going to come, you need to come on my terms. You have no merit. You have no reason to negotiate the terms. What do, you, what do you bring to the table to change the offer? It's like, well, you know, I could, I could bring a pile of gold. You're poor. You can't even see. You can't even hear. You're incapable in your own of offering this king anything of value to him. 
other than your obedience, will you yield? He says, if you come, I need you to realize what you're getting yourself into. You have no merit to come, but I'm inviting you. And I want you. But I need you to give up your life if you're going to come. That's an interesting strategy. And I want you to realize why so many of us say, you know, I have a wife. I have five yoke of oxen. Have me excused. I don't want the serious version of Christianity. I want the lighthearted one. I don't like this stuff. Could I have something a little easier? Uh, could you give me a different choice? Uh, you know, I, that one I don't want. Could you have me excused from that one? There is one invitation. You either take it or leave it, and the terms are set. The king himself set them. You don't barter, you don't negotiate. He set them, and it's your life. The wooing of the foreign mercenaries. God is looking, when we use the term or the illustration of a feast, it doesn't fully enunciate the entirety of the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus gave multiple parables. But there are a lot of other wrinkles to it, and one is that we're in the midst of hostile territory and we're in the midst of a battle. Ephesians 6, we need armor on. In other words, there is a battle raging about us, and we must be fortified and made fit to stand firm in that battle. Why? Because we are progressing a kingdom on earth. We are bringing something from heaven to this earth and expanding it, taking territory for our king. And so God is looking for an army. The problem is his army that he chose and he went after has asked for an excusal. They didn't accept the invitation. They didn't want to eat of his body and drink of his blood. They wanted life and religion and their relationship with God on their own terms. So he went out into the highway and the hedges and found you. And he says, I want you. But you must give up your life. So just imagine. President of Sweden calls you up and says, I'd like you to come and be in my armies. Be in my army. I'd like you to be sort of one of my frontline soldiers that goes in and, you know, usually dies in, in the first week. Uh, and uh, we're like, uh, why would I do that? Well, I'm the king of Sweden, okay? Uh, you know, I have a lot of people that, you know, look up to me and uh, a lot of people that think I'm something special. And I think you should listen to me and think I'm special too. So come and give your life. Uh, I'll pay for your plane ticket. What else are you going to throw in? Uh, well, I'll pay you $1,000 a week. You know what? I'm going to die in the first week. This doesn't sound like a very good deal. You know what? That's exactly what Christianity sounds like to a lot of people. What is our motivation? Okay, so say he wants me at his supper, but then he asks for everything? This isn't a very good deal. I'd rather just keep my own life, thank you, and just be a dog. What's the good of this? Why do I need to give up my life? God is looking for mercenaries. He's looking for men and women who will fight his battle even though they're not nationals. He will fight for his kingdom. They will treat him as if he is their father even though they weren't born naturally in his line. And he's saying, will you come and give up your life? It doesn't sound right. Something doesn't fit. There is a problem in this, and that's because we are not giving the true motivation for what woos the mercenaries. The mercenaries aren't wooed the same way 
that the king of Sweden is trying to woo me. Don't throw benefits down on the table and say, I can prove to you that I can make you happy. I can make your life a little better. You know, you come to me and I can, you know, sort of make everything just work a little more smoothly on this side of, uh, of the eternal life. Yeah, come on. I can give you a little peace, a little joy. There better be a better motivation. And there is. The wooing of the foreign mercenaries. He asks his soldiers to fight with lion-hearted zeal and to never retreat, no matter the heat of battle and to turn and the turn of momentum on the field. He simply says, no akakia, which is the Greek for no tiredness, no weakness, no off time, no downtime. That's what he says. He says, no merim no, no fear, no anxiety, no fretting. This is what he's telling his soldiers. I want you to come, forsake all you have, all your family, give up your life, Come, and I want you to fight my battles without tire, tired, without, with tirelessness and without fear. I want you to go in there into the hottest fray, knowing you're going to die, and I don't want you to hesitate in the process. Keep fighting, keep praying, keep persisting, keep believing. Now listen to this list. No matter the natural odds for victory, no matter the dangers to life and limb, no matter the risks to reputation and public esteem, no matter if you're the only one still standing, no matter if the battle just doesn't seem to end, no matter if you are tired and there is little left to fight with, no matter if all those around you claim it's no use to keep on swinging, no matter if you are mocked and ridiculed, no matter if you must go against the entire world system, you're outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed. So the question is, who's in? Have I given you enough of a reason to give up your life? The gospel is a lot stronger. There is reason. There is something that causes a man or a woman to rise up and hear that list and say, I don't care how many more things you add to the list, I'm in. No miram no, no akakio. Keep fighting, keep praying, keep persisting, I'm in. What would cause someone to be like that? It better be good, and it is. God has a motivation. He has something that he is giving to his saints. And it changes them. It changes the dogs into angelic creatures. Something that is a picture of heaven on earth. And they are willing to die. The most shocking things in early Christianity is that these men and women, when they were threatened with torture, being hung, covered with tar to light as a living torch, Nero's outside parties when they were told they were going to be fed to the wild beasts and torn into pieces, that they didn't hesitate and they said, do your best, but I'm not relenting in my love for my king. I serve him and I serve him loyally. All you have to say, they said to the early Christians, is say, Caesar is your Lord. It's all you need to say and we'll let you go. Caesar is not my Lord. I serve the king of kings. I will not relent. What's he paying him? How does he get such foreign mercenaries? How in the world is he pulling this off? What is his secret? Outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed. Who wants that for their life? And we as Christians say, I do. I'll take it because I get my king. The payment for the mercenary. 
What would lead a foreign mercenary to gladly leave riches, position, fame, worldly power, and earthly comforts behind? What would cause a foreign mercenary to gladly embrace the disdain, mockery, and revilement of the world for the pleasure of his king? What could possibly motivate a foreign mercenary to gladly suffer, endure hardship, dangers, tortures, and extreme privations for the expansion of his ruler's fame and renown? What could cause a mercenary to smile at the notion of a painful death if it be for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of his master? Can you think of any army on planet Earth that is offering such terms that anyone is going to want to fight for them? What kind of mercenary would you have to be? You'd have to be an idiot to pick such terms. What would lead God's mercenaries to be willing to check off on this list and say, I'm in. Yes, I'm in. Do you realize this? Yes, I do. I'm in. I will not back down. My heart is yours. My sword is yours. You know, one of those classic statements about um, Alexander the Great, it's like a little a story from history. And, he, and I don't remember the, the stronghold he was marching on, but it was a long siege. That, Alexander the Great, when he went after something, he got it, by the way. He just always won. And if he couldn't outmuscle him, he would outlast him. And that's what a siege is. And he was outlasting And so what he did in this one long-held siege is he brought in basically his most loyal soldiers, his best and his brawniest. He brought them in to the front. And before all the onlooking soldiers of the uh, stronghold that he was uh, laying siege to, they all witnessed as the general, Alexander, commanded his men to march. Well, there's a cliff right up ahead. March! March! And they all marched straight off the cliff to their death. Suddenly the white flag went up and the stronghold surrendered because they realized these men would back down for nothing. When you have that type of soldiers at your beck and call, the enemy throws up the white flag. The problem is, Christians today are in battle for their own reasons. We'll say a prayer as long as it benefits us. As long as there's some type of earthly benefit to me, could you show it to me on paper? What am I getting out of this? We need to get back to true Christianity. Our motivation is supposed to be completely different. Because I agree with you, if our motivation is simply monetary, if it's somehow comfort-based, what kind of plunder am I getting? You know, when we take down that stronghold, what what do I get out of it? If that's our motivation, we have to look out for our own skin, then we better be more cunning in this battle with God. It's like, hey, I need more out of this. You're getting all the heavens and the earth in the end. You get all the kingdoms. If I'm going to help you, I want something back. You know what? That's the opposite. That's the antithesis of Christianity. In a nutshell, that's the antithesis. You know what Christianity is? Taking your final reward. You have a crown and throwing it at his feet. Whatever he gives you, you give it back. Why? What is going on inside of a Christian that would cause them to give every bit of plunder they do get back to their king? It's his spoil. He deserves it. The lamb that was slain is worthy to receive the reward. It's his. It's not mine. I can't touch it. Peter, when he was brought to his crucifixion, he was going to be crucified as Christ, and he begged that he, he said, I am unworthy to die as my Lord. My Lord died that way. 
They crucified him upside down, a more painful death. Because he was unworthy, he said, to die as his Lord. Let, the Lord, let his Lord have preeminence. Let his Lord have that position. He's the one that died that way. That was the death that matters. Don't put me in that position. It's an incredible attitude. The love bond, the offering of the ear. You've heard of a bond servant in the Old Testament. Well, let's, I have the subtitle of the offering of the ear. Let's just explore this real quick. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. This servant has been set free. However, if he loves his master, what he says is, then his master shall bring him under the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or under the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. John, in the book of Revelation, refers to himself as a bondservant. And in the Hebrew understanding, he is saying, though Christ set me free, I came back and laid my life before him and said, I will serve you forever. Pierce my ear. Why an ear? What's the significance of an ear? An ear is the place of obedience. Whatever your commander says, you predecide that you will do it. Yes. Yes. Yes, Lord. I will. Yes, Lord. It doesn't matter how difficult it gets. You don't measure it and say, well, I will only obey up to this point. When you give up your ear to the living God, you are saying, no matter what you ask of me, I predecide even before I know what it is, my answer is yes. The beloved shepherd who fights for his sheep against any lion, bear, or giant who dares. Let's talk about David really quickly here. David, the psalmist king, the warrior poet, the most, one of the most incredible pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, of the, of the Messiah that would come, the king that would come. Just an extraordinary man. David is anointed on the hills of Bethlehem by the prophet of old with a ram's horn full of oil. Bethlehem, the place of birth. In this case, new birth. You need to go to the hills of Bethlehem and be born too. Mighties come out of Bethlehem. You know that David's mighties, if not all of them, almost every single one of them came out of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the birthplace of the mighties. It's the birthplace of the soldiers that stand loyally next to their king. So we have David, who is anointed king over an entire nation. The problem is, Saul, who has been rejected as king by God, is still sitting on the throne. So we've got a little tension here. In fact, Saul tries to kill David 21 times because of this. But poor David. Okay, could you imagine? He's not even invited to the you know, inauguration, you know, the whole anointing affair in the first place. He's the eighth son of Jesse. He has no business being there. He's not even invited. That's an incredible picture of you in and of itself. The first seven that are invited are passed over by God. This is that one. The one that's still in the pasture land. The one that's not invited. You know, his brothers and his dad obviously didn't think he was king material. You know where they sent him right after he was anointed? You know what they should have done? They should have started treating him as the king of Israel. He's the king. Who said? God. God said David is king. Instead, his dad sends him out to the, to the pasture lands again. That's showing a lot of respect. So David is still a shepherd. 
That's an incredible statement after being anointed king. He is completely disregarded by those close to him. And he's out in the pasture lands. He is king of a nation, yet completely unrecognized by that nation. That's Jesus Christ, by the way. Jesus Christ is king. Whether he's acknowledged as such on this earth or not, he is king. So David is out in the pasture land. And if he doesn't have a nation to rule that's going to acknowledge him, he has some sheep. And he's going to treat those sheep as his subjects, and he is their king. And so a lion comes strolling into the camp, takes one of his sheep, and David says, not on my watch. And he goes running after that lion, grabs him by the mane, breaks his jaw, and takes back his sheep. You know how amazing of a story that is, just in and of itself? Who, how many people do you know that would go after a lion with food in its mouth? Okay, you don't go after a dog with food in his mouth. How much more a lion? David is king. He knows his position. He knows what his responsibility is. And he says, no, not on my watch. And he literally goes after that sheep and rescues him. You want to know why David had such a loyalty among his men? Because it's an interesting question. If you want to study leadership, study David. Because his men would do anything for him. I mean, do, you, do you remember? Uh, I mean, first of all, you have these sheep. He is treating them the way he treated his nation in the future. He would give up his life. He would be the one to stand. You know that David never just sent out his men. He would be the one to stand and say, I'll take the hint. Talk about a man, an amazing picture. So a bear who didn't get the memo about the lion, or if he did, he didn't believe it, comes strolling into the camp, grabs one of David's sheep, and it's just like, you don't know who you're messing with. You're messing with the anointed of God, the king of Israel. David comes running after him, breaks his jaw, takes back his lamb, the whole routine over again, makes a little bear coat for himself. Then a giant strolls in to Israel. When David showed up delivering bread and cheese to his brothers, you know what he was? In his mind, he knew it. He's the king. And there's a giant out there that is blaspheming the armies of the living God. They're blaspheming his armies. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And what are you guys doing about it? Who's standing against him? Everyone's trembling with fear. Let me at him. Let me at him. I took down a lion. I took down a bear. Who is this giant? He has nothing on God. Nothing. The most amazing thing that happens in that that picture, I I love when we, we teach it at Ellerslie, there's this word. It says that Goliath was sitting, and when he saw David approach, he arose. We always pictured Goliath standing in the middle of the valley. He was sitting, probably being fanned and fed grapes. He sees David approaching, and he rises up, sort of like, you know, take care of business now. When David sees him rise up, it says that David hasted him to battle, which means, in the Hebrew, to move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. David. David went as a lion towards his prey. It's not Goliath going, Ugh. It's David going after. Who's on the offensive? The church, not Goliath. Goliath thinks he's so powerful and mighty. 
But God's looking for those that are sold out and know his power. See, the reason I'm building a case on David is because I want you to realize the way that David attracted his men is the same way that Jesus attracts his mercenaries. And that is, you know the word David, you know what his name means? Beloved. He was the beloved. His men loved him. Why? He gave up his life for them. He risked everything for them. He gave them his best. He stood guard over them. He was king in the most admirable, amazing, honorable fashion. In the, in the cave of Adullam, it says that David sighed. So this is their little hideout. And those that were with him were the mighties. It was his closest men. And three of the mighties overheard him as David said, Oh, just for a cup of cool water. Just for a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem was under siege. It was completely garrisoned in by the Philistines. Those three that loved their king, were so moved by their king, it says that they broke through the garrison of the Philistines, which is an incredible scene. They break through the garrison of the Philistines to go to the well of Bethlehem. Could you imagine what this must have looked like? You know, it's like, broke through these Philistines, like, what in the world's going on here? And they go chasing after him, and it's like, you cover! And they have two guys fighting off, and this other guy is getting a little cup of water. And then they have to get that cup of water back. You know, I just walk down the hall and it starts to spill out of the cup. Could you imagine how they're going to get that cup back? Splattered with blood, Philistine blood, they somehow make it back to the cave of Adullam and offer. It was a love mission. They love their king. It's completely ridiculous that they would do this. And it's completely ridiculous that you would serve your king this way. What Jesus has asked for is absolutely preposterous to the natural man. No way. Have me excused. I'm not giving up my life. Until you meet your king. Until you know his love. Until you truly know him as your beloved. And you are captivated by his person. And you realize that all he has has been given to you. What can I do in return? You've saved me. You've rescued me. My life is yours. Spend it any way you see fit. That's Christianity. Recovering all. I'm going to just summarize this. This is in 1 Samuel 30, and I would encourage you to read it. Look at 1 Samuel 30, 19. It's the third paragraph down. David, David's camp has been plundered by the Amalekites, which in the Old Testament, you're going to, have to trust me on this when we do elaborate studies on this at Ellerslie, is symbolic of the flesh in the Old Testament, the Amalekite nation is. It's the descendants of Esau. So you have Jacob and Esau, two nations warring in the womb, flesh, spirit. And... So what we have is we have the Amalekites that plunder David's camp and they run off with two of his wives, okay? And I was going to go into this at a greater level. Two of David's wives, one that was of Israel and one that was gained through the death of a husband, which is us. And so David goes after it. And so there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And I want you to realize in this scene, Something extraordinary is taking place that actually affects the course of Israel's history. David, when something is taken from him, not just a sheep now, it's actually his wives, his children, his men's children, his men's wives. It's a serious business. You know what he does? He pursues them. You know how much bigger this, this army was than his? He had 400 men and they were all exhausted. They'd been fighting for 200 of them had to stay back because they were so tired they couldn't even function. 
He goes after him with 400 weakened men. And the way we know that what he was fighting against was so much bigger is that it says that only 400 of the Amalekites Amalekites escaped, but he killed all of them. So the ones that escaped were as many as his attacking army that were weak. That's extraordinary. David comes in with a weakened troop, and it says that he recovered all. I want you to realize that when the enemy steals from your life, that when he robs from your family, I can't tell you how many parents I've talked with, Christian parents, where they have that one child in their family, and it brings such deep pain even to bring up the topic, even the thought. The enemy's run off with something. You know what our attitude is? No way. We go back and we strike. We go back with the same feistiness of David. You want to know what this wins, David? This wins, David, the affection of the entire nation of Israel. You know what he did at the very end? I don't know if I included it. I didn't. I took it out. He sent gifts. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent the spoil. I did have it. Unto the spoil of the, unto the elders of Judah. And to all the places where David himself and his men were wont to haunt. I really like that, that line. Uh, the places that David was wont to haunt. I thought of naming the message want to haunt, but that wouldn't have made any sense. Uh, the places where David was welcomed. The places that invited him in and said, you're safe here. He took his spoil. Right after this victory, all of his men said, this is the spoil of David. You know what he did with it? He gave it. What's that line in how deep the Father's love for us? What's that line? Uh, that his reward would become ours. I can't remember the great line. It's a great line. But how mystifying, how bewildering that his reward would be given to us. Why should we participate? Why should we share in his reward? That's David. You want to know why his men are loyal? Because he deserves it all, and instead he gives it to you. He gives you all he is. He gives you the privileges that he has. His authority is vested in you. I'm a dog. Why is he giving it to me? He gives you not just forgiveness. He gives you freedom and liberty from everything that has held you down. He adopts you into his family. Why is he doing this? He is giving to you what you don't deserve. And you want to know what that does to the men that serve under him. He rescued one of the nations that was held captive here. An entire nation was held captive through this. The Carathites. And David, in the process of of recovering all, sets them free. The Carathites are in the Old Testament. They are David's most loyal mercenaries. They were mercenaries. You know that they actually were led by a man named Benaiah, who was one of David's six most mighty men. He was the captain of the bodyguard. Technically, he was captain of the Carathites and the Pelathites. Mercenaries. They weren't from Israel. And they were David's most loyal. Why? Why would they be the most loyal? That David would entrust them with the most intimate position of being his bodyguard. Think about that. That is an incredible picture of the New Testament. That those that are outside, the foreigners, have been invited in, not to any old position, but to the most intimate position of being the bodyguard. You are called to be sentinels, the guard of the body of Christ. Do you not know that you are the body? That the Holy Spirit lives in you? 
that you are the house of the living God? You don't just protect it in one individual. You protect it in the corporate church. You are the foreigner that has been bought, that has been paid for and brought in. And because of love and devotion, you say, my sword is yours. These men were the most loyal. What was it that bought them? It was the willingness of their leader, of their king, of the one they love and adore, their beloved, to give up his life for them, to risk everything to gain them, to set them free. And their response was, anything you ask of us, we will give you. They were his bodyguard. The amazing gospel. I was going to go through Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, but this was going to be too long. I would encourage you to write that down if you have any notepad and realize that everything I'm about to tell you is just sort of summarized in it. It's an incredible picture of the gospel. Very simply put. Remember how we went through in the beginning we said, what do the Jews possess? I want you to realize that in the New Testament it is clearly articulated on every single one of those eight points that something has been transferred. That you have been invited to the feast that was theirs. This is not just okay news. The word good falls far short of what it is. This is absolutely extraordinary when you begin to behold what Jesus Christ has done, what your commander has done for you. The adoption. They had the adoption. They were part of God's family. They had access unto their God as a father to make petitions of him, and he took care of them as children. And it talks about in Galatians 4, 5, the adoption of sons. Of course, all throughout the New Testament, it talks about the adoption, that the Spirit of God within us actually cries out, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy, most intimate name, the glory. They had the glory. They had the presence of God dwelling there. They saw it. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope of glory, the chariot of the cherubim returning to earth again, but not externally, internally, where God makes this his throne room and the cherubim within surround it and fall down and praise it and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The covenants, we have the new covenant in his blood. The giving of the law, we have something better. We have the giving of the spirit the service of God. The Jews were able to participate in the commission of God on earth. We have the great commission as given in Matthew, as outlined for us to make disciples of all nations, to go into all the earth. We have been asked. We have been given the privilege now. We've been invited. We don't deserve this job description. You think about what kind of job you'd like to have. I want to work for the king. I want to be one of his mighties. I'm going to be one that he names in his short list that says, he's my man. I can call upon him and send him anywhere in the world. That's your privilege. You now have access unto such a job description. The question is, do you want it? Because for some reason, very few do. This is your opportunity in. There's a job opening, and very few people are wanting it. The way is narrow, and few are those who are finding it. So if you want it, it's there for the taking. I say go after it. There's no greater privilege than to work for the king of kings. The promises. Do you know that you have access to the promises of God? You had no right. Now suddenly, you have an invitation in. 
why the church of Jesus Christ doesn't take God up on it is bewildering to me because it says in Peter that these promises aren't just good promises. They're exceeding great and precious. You better get to know them. It's one of the things we teach at Ellerslie. What are the promises? We need to go after them. We need to know them to go after them. The fathers. Well, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. Do you want to talk about a pedigree? Do we brag that our father after the flesh is Abraham? My father after the spirit is God Almighty. You know what? That has greater weight. We have access by one spirit unto the Father. The race of the incarnation. They were the ones that housed the incarnation. The Messiah came as a Hebrew, as an Israelite. Well, uh, guess what? The incarnation of Christ within. And Christ has come again in Gentiles, in Gentile believers. He lives within us. He is fleshed out through our actions and our obedience and our yieldedness. And he is seen on earth. And even greater works will be done in and through his church. This is an expansion. This is a furtherance. And we have the privilege of partaking of it. The love-bought mercenaries. I had a, a dream... I'm not going to give that story. I'm going to give a different one. I had, there was a season four years ago, maybe it was three, but I was studying orphans in Liberia, very specific. I was studying the nation of Liberia and and what was taking place there. And it was so horrifying and so disturbing. I remember having this lady that was running an orphanage over there, and I was talking to her about the situation. Basically, she was saying, we have no hands and no feet and no resources to be able to help these kids. We're already maxed out. Every single hand that we have is spent. Every single dollar we have is stretched. And we have kids that are dying just down the road. No one to feed them, no one to help them. We need warm bodies, but not just warm bodies. We need Christians. Where are they? Why aren't they here? She told me about a little, I think it was a four-year-old, it might have been a three-year-old at the time. I don't remember how, just somewhere in that range, a young little boy sitting on the side of the road in Liberia just starving. No parents, no one to feed him, no one to comfort him, put their arm around him and say, you know what? I want to help you. Nothing. He has no idea what's going on in life. All he's doing is sitting there and starving. And my reaction to this, of course, is probably similar to yours. This is horrible. How terrible. Here's the mystery of what took place. I got off that phone call, grieved, and then I went back to my day. I actually functioned normal that day. I went but ate normal. You know, I didn't just throw up. I was fine. I was able to somehow disconnect from the atrocities taking place in this earth, and I was able to function. Do you say anything wrong with that? Well, if you say yes, then suddenly that becomes an indictment on you, doesn't it? Because... If we know what's going on and we do nothing, what's wrong with us? Did you know that there's actually something? It's, it's a crime in America. It's actually a crime. It's, it's the charge of murder, and it's called depraved indifference. If you see someone uh, drowning in front of you, say you're sitting on a park bench and they're drowning, and you do nothing to help them, 
that's actually treated as a perversion and a twisting of humanity, and you are charged with some form of murder because you didn't do anything in response. Now, every single one of us in here, if we were on that park bench, I have a hunch, would do something. But there's something that is wrong with us because we can hear about what's going on in this world and even know that they need us. And we have a thousand justifications that fill our mind and that hinder us from doing anything about it. And the weird thing is, and we don't think about it again either. It doesn't haunt us. It doesn't burden us. It doesn't mess with us at all. So here's what happened to Eric Ludy. Poor Eric Ludy. I go back to my day. My, Leslie and the kids were out of town at the time, and so I was getting all sorts of stuff done and feeling all good about it. And I, I was in the middle of the night, and uh, I woke up, and God had a pre-set question just sort of hanging in my room. Popped awake, and God just, it just like, I knew the question. It was this, because I saw that little boy in my mind. Immediately, in the middle of the night, wasn't dreaming about anything, just there the boy was. Eric, what if that was Hudson? Hudson was that exact same age of that boy at the time, three, four, whatever it was. What if that was Hudson? If that was Hudson, just think about the difference of my response. I would break through any barrier. I would claw through concrete with my bare hands to get to him. If my son was starving, dying, if he was lonely and completely confused of what was going on, you want to know what that does to a father's heart? I mean, you turn over semis with what's going on inside of you to make sure you get there. Now, what if I couldn't get there to him? And I'm a father, and I know my son is in need. You know what I would do? I would call up everyone I know, everyone that calls himself my friend. And I would say, my son, my son needs you. I will pay for everything you need to get to him. I'll give you coordinates. I'll do whatever it takes to help you. But I need you to go in my place. You know what God said to me in this time? Eric, that's my Hudson. Suddenly, everything makes a little more sense to me of what's taking place on this earth. Because we have a tendency to only be burdened for that which touches our life intimately. But we need to realize that Christianity is being touched by the heart of God. It is becoming his mercenary. We do his errands, not just our own family ones. What is on his heart? Because if that boy is on his heart, what are we doing? What are we doing? Can we just go back to our normal life? If I know that Hudson is on the other side of the world dying, do you think I can function normally in my daily life? Do you think I can just go back to the way it always was? My son needs me. My son needs me. Every thought is consumed with it. You are burdened. That's what it's known as a burden in Christianity. You, are, you have a heaviness in your heart and you're moved to your knees to pray. Something must be done. And you say, God, if you need me, I'll do it. Remember C.T. Studd? I was talking about him last night in the discipleship. C.T. Studd is burdened for interior Africa. This guy has no business going. He says, God, if you need a man, I'm right here. We need to have an exertion of soul. We need to realize that sheep are being taken out of the flock daily by lions and bears. And we need to realize that Jesus Christ has modeled for us the behavior of a Christian. And that is not on my watch. You don't take from God's flock. Jesus 
had the same audacity, the same daring spirit, the same courage as David. And when that sheep is taken, Jesus ran after it. When the giant stands in the valley of Elah, Jesus hasted unto battle and took the giant down. There was an entire army of Philistines that was marching on Israel. And they were after a parcel of ground called Pasdaman in Scripture. It's a parcel of barley and beans. Worthless to most of us. It's like barley and beans. You know that all of Israel fled, it says. They fled. And it says that David stood. Okay, that's, that's good. An entire army, parcel of barley and beans, and David stands. Who is this guy? He's a picture of the Messiah to come. You are a parcel of barley and beans. And Jesus stands up and risks his entire life, spends it for you. It's an incredible story. Now, two of his mighties ended up standing with him, so it was three against an entire army. It doesn't matter the odds. You fight God's battles, you win. That's the principle of what we're talking about. When we're talking about the foreign mercenary, we're talking about one that is purchased. One that such a great and inestimable price was paid. And our response is, I'm in. And it doesn't matter if all Israel flees. Everyone in the church leaves. And if Jesus is standing on a parcel of barley and beans with his sword drawn, he looks you in the eyes, you look him in the eyes, he winks at you and says, let's go to battle. And you pull out your sword too. That's a movie scene. That's what Christianity is in a nutshell. If you see anything in the body of Christ that is being stripped clean, that the glory of God is being diminished, you draw your sword. If your family is being attacked, if your children are under siege, if your brothers and sisters are under the thumb of the enemy, then you draw your sword and you act as David acted. You act as Jesus acted. You are purchased by the blood of Jesus and these are the errands of Jesus to carry out. It's clear to your soul. You know what to do. Don't back down. They fight for the king and the king's body. No matter the natural odds for victory, this is the same list from before, I'm repeating it, and I'm realizing this is your command. This is your job description. You have been saved. You have been set free. You have been purchased. What is your response? You fight for the king and the king's body, no matter the natural odds for victory, no matter the dangers to life and limb, no matter the risks to reputation and public esteem, no matter if you are the only one still standing, no matter if the battle just doesn't seem to end, no matter if you are tired and there is little left to fight with, no matter if all those around you claim it's no use to keep on swinging, no matter if you are mocked and ridiculed, no matter if you must go against the entire world system, So why do these foreign mercenaries do this? What in the world would cause any man or woman on earth to yield themselves to the Most High God, give themselves wholly and fully, risk all reputation, risk life and limb, choose to be despised? What could possibly be the motivation? The motive for the Christ-purchased mercenary, it's for love. I know that might sound like some sappy love song, but in this case, it's right. It's true. It's pure. We do it 
because we love him. We don't do it because we think high thoughts of him. We don't do it because he's a good king. We don't do it just because he's deserving of it. All those things are true. We are motivated because we love him. Love is what you need. It is the fuel for the soul that will carry you into battle and make sure that you do not retreat. As the famous statement goes in Christian history, God has given us armor for victory. He's given us nothing for retreat. We don't back down in the battle. There is nothing for the back. If you turn and hightail it, you're vulnerable to the enemy. You press forward. You march on the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. That is the commission of the church of Jesus Christ. We are onward, upward. We're marching forward to victory and not defeat. I don't care if it looks like defeat. You know that it looked like defeat when Jesus was on the cross? It didn't look too good. He wasn't looking too hot. He died. Well, that something went wrong there. Nothing went wrong. And there's going to be moments where it looks like something's going wrong in your life and with the church. But if the church stays faithful to Jesus Christ, if those mercenaries stay focused, and we say we're in for your love all the way to the end, you know that God has never in all of world history lost a battle. And even though it looks like his saints are going down, and even if they do die, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God wins and trumps everything the enemy does every time. Every time the enemy tries to wreak havoc and turn it to evil, God turns it to good. Every time, without exception. And you are not going to be the lone exception on planet Earth. God wins. You stand firm. And when you see sheep being attacked, when you see your children being hurt, when you see the church of Jesus Christ being harassed, you rise up with the same ferocity, the same audacity, the same daring, the same courage as your king. When you see the parcel of barley and beans, you rise up. It says of Eleazar, who stood by David's side, fought three against an army. It says that in the midst of the battle, his hand grew weary. Well, that's an understatement. Could you imagine? How many guys do you have to fight before you start getting a little tired here? The battle didn't seem to be ending. Wave after wave after wave. But it says his hand clave unto the sword. That's a symbol for resolution. It's a decision of soul to say, I'm not backing down. And all it says in Scripture, the massive understatement of Scripture, which Scripture is famous for, and the Lord wrought a great victory. You're getting tired. But do not grow weary. Cleave your hand unto the sword afresh today. The battle is not over. You keep pressing forward unto victory. God's people win. Why? Because they are enabled by the God who has never lost. No longer foreigners. Let's finish with this thought. Okay, I sort of made you feel bad in the beginning. I said no place, no parts. You're outside the pale. Remember how I had to put dot, dot, dots and clip out some of Ephesians 2? I'm going to stick a little back in now. I want you to feel the full weight of what you have. I want you to appreciate it. You don't deserve it, but for some reason, Jesus has invited you. It's going to cost you everything. But when you see his love, when you see what he's given you, when you see the reward that is rightfully his that he's given to you, there is no other response than, I'm in. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. You are a house of God. You, the dog, you have become the very dwelling place. When Jesus Christ came to this earth as a baby, he was born in a stable as a picture of being born in you. We don't deserve this. And let's always remember that. I want you to realize he's recruiting us. He's inviting us. And it's the ultimate privilege. This is not something to negotiate. This is something to accept without further discussion. Your king is asking for your life. And you say, you have it. So for those of you that are still clinging to your life, for whatever reason, why we cling to our life is mystifying to me. I do it all the time, too. God, I know I just gave that message. Why am I holding on to this again? We have a propensity, an iron grip upon ourselves. We want the control. We want it to be about us. But it must be about him. Let's pray for that. Holy Father, this must be about you for you, for your glory, for your honor, for your praise, for your adoration. This must be about you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would wrench our lives from our grip and you would take what is rightfully yours. We are love-bought mercenaries, but we are foreigners no more. We are children of the Most High God. We have become nationals of the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for grafting us in, for making us a part of you in your life and your promises, and your covenant. Lord, we have it all in you. And Lord Jesus, I pray that a thanksgiving and a gratitude would gush forth from our souls today, and we would live lives worthy of the calling we've received. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message. But do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellersley.com. Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.